Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today we are picking up the second part of a two-parter. So if you have not heard our previous episode, uh, I strongly recommend getting into that one before you get into this one. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066 on February 19th of 1942, and this paved the way for Japanese Americans to be removed from the Pacific Coast en masse and incarcerated in camps for the duration of World War II. Last time, we talked about the history of Japanese immigration into the United States and how the U.S. arrived at deciding that needed to plan a mass removal. This time, we will talk about the executive order, what happened in the camps, and then what happened after the war was over. Following the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the U.S. War Department in particular began to advocate for aggressive action to eliminate the potential for espionage, sabotage, and anti-American activity on the part of the Japanese population. Its recommendation was a wide-scale effort of removal and incarceration. Just to recap the thing that we said at the top of part one, Japanese uh, nationals were not the only people targeted by this. There were also Germans and Italians who were incarcerated as well. There were millions and millions of people in the United States of German or Italian ancestry. There's no possible way to intern them all and no effort for any kind of wide scale internment of Germans and Italians. Uh, And occasionally we will get notes from people suggesting that there was, there was really not a key architect of the removal uh, of Japanese Americans from the West Coast was Carl Bendison. His background was kind of deceptive. Uh, he was the he was the son of Jewish immigrants who basically changed his name and made up that he was an immigrant from Denmark so that he could get into an exclusive fraternity when he was in school. Like. This. There was a lot of shadiness in his background, and he was, in this case, working as a strategist. He formulated the basic concept of how an executive order could get around the many, many unconstitutional aspects of incarcerating American citizens without due process based on their nationality. There are a lot of ways in which that entire idea is flatly, unquestionably unconstitutional. So, instead of conceiving this as an order targeting Japanese Americans, he instead framed it as a need to set up zones to be placed under military jurisdiction from which any and all persons could be evacuated. He also recommended a three-step process to setting this up. There would be an executive order that would give the Secretary of War authority to do it. There would be establishment of the military zones themselves, and then there would be a provision for removing persons from within these zones. The only persons really being targeted here, even though it never said specifically, were Japanese Americans. 
At first, the recommended military zones were imagined as small, specific areas around vulnerable targets, uh, like bridges, power plants, and military bases. But during discussions leading up to the actual drafting of the executive order, they grew. Whole cities were named as potential zones, then whole regions. Soon, it stretched the entire length of the West Coast, which was also where nearly all Japanese Americans were living, apart from Hawaii. Yeah, there were only a very few Japanese Americans living anywhere in the United States other than the West Coast and Hawaii. On February 17th of 1942, President Franklin Roosevelt told Harry L. Stimson, the Secretary of War, and John McCloy, the Assistant Secretary of War, to draft an executive order to get all this accomplished. And he specifically directed them not to involve Attorney General Francis Biddle who, as we noted in part one, regarded a mass incarceration as unconstitutional from several angles. Biddle would wind up finding out about this only upon seeing the final approved draft, after which point he sent one more memo to the president. He stressed that distrust of the Japanese and a desire to take over their now successful farmland, not national security, was really what was driving this push for a removal. The end result of all this was Executive Order 9066, which was titled Authorizing the Secretary of War to Prescribe Military Areas. It superseded previous proclamations made by the Attorney General, who had raised so many objections to the plan, and instead granted authority to the Secretary of War. The order authorized the Secretary of War and military commanders that he designated, quote, to prescribe military areas in such places and of such extent as he or the appropriate military commander may determine, from which any or all persons may be excluded, and with respect to which the right of any person to enter, remain in, or leave shall be subject to whatever restrictions the Secretary of War or the appropriate military commander may impose in his discretion." The Secretary of War and the military commanders were also authorized to take whatever steps they thought were appropriate to ensure compliance with these exclusion zones. The order specified that the government would, quote, provide for residents of any such area who are excluded therefrom such transportation, food, shelter, and other accommodations as may be necessary. It authorized all executive departments of the government to assist the Secretary of War and military commanders with this effort. The executive order did not have its own enforcement provisions. These came in the form of Public Law 503, which was also drafted by the War Department and introduced to the Senate on March 9th. It was introduced to the House of Representatives on March 10th, and it was signed into law on March 21st, 1942. Public Law 503 was, quote, to provide a penalty for violation of restrictions or orders with respect to persons entering, remaining in, leaving, or committing any act in military areas or zones. It set a fine of up to $5,000 and imprisonment of up to a year for each offense of entering, leaving, or committing any act in a military zone established under the executive order. Roosevelt signed another executive order, number 9102, quote, establishing the War Relocation Authority in the executive office of the president and defining its functions and duties on March 18th. The War Relocation Authority was the civilian agency that was responsible for creating and maintaining the camps that would house the people who were removed under the terms of Executive Order 9066. 
The War Relocation Authority was part of the Office for Emergency Management. Executive Order 9102 would also, quote, provide, insofar as feasible and desirable, for the employment of such persons at useful work in industry, commerce, agriculture, or public projects, prescribe the terms and conditions of such public employment, and safeguard the public interest in the private employment of such persons. There were also other acts and laws that were connected to all of this as well. But these two executive orders and Public Law 503 were the primary ones involved with establishing the authority to remove people, enforcing that removal order, and relocating and housing the people who were removed. In some cases, also giving them work to do. If you begin with the point of view that the government can be trusted to see to the best interests of its citizens and residents, and to be clear, that is not what was going on here, this might sound somewhat innocuous. It was basically saying that the Secretary of War and his designated military commanders could set up evacuation zones for the sake of national safety and security. The Pacific Coast, for example, was considered high risk, given how easily Japan could reach it. And if your home was deemed to be in an exclusion zone and you had to leave, the government would have to provide you with food and shelter. It was all framed out uh, as being a military necessity, and most government communications on the matter used euphemistic terms like assembly point and relocation center and evacuation, as though this entire removal plan was for people's own protection. It's deceptively normal-seeming when you read it, and during peacetime, it certainly would have raised a huge outcry. It clearly gave the government a very, very broad authority to deprive people of their rights to privacy and property and due process and the constitutional protection against unreasonable search and seizure under the Fourth Amendment. Just as a few examples. But in a time of war, especially given that the attack on Pearl Harbor had been such a devastating shock only a couple of months before, it was deceptively easy, especially for people not actually affected by this order, to read it as common sense. For the sake of national security, certain parts of the nation needed to be evacuated. And for anyone evacuated, the government would see to their care and housing. This sounds so reasonable in theory. Yeah. And of course, there were also people who were in favor of it who were motivated not by a sense of national security or safety, but by greed for the farmland and the property that were going to have to be abandoned. Another factor was definitely prejudice, and there were all manner of other issues involved that had zero to do with national security. And also, in spite of all the very rational-sounding language in this, it was not an evacuation to a relocation center. It was a forced removal to a concentration camp. And we are going to talk about that actual removal after we first pause and take a little break and hear from one of the sponsors that keeps this show going. The first step to executing Executive Order 9066 was a recommendation that anyone of Japanese descent leave the established military areas voluntarily. And these military areas spanned the whole West Coast. But since Enemy aliens, uh, again, that's just people who were citizens of a country at war with the place that they were living. 
Since enemy aliens' assets had all been frozen, that meant most people just did not have the means to do it even if they wanted to. Their assets were frozen. They had no way to fund a trip anywhere. Some who did try to leave voluntarily also encountered violent resistance on the part of white residents in the places they tried to go, so they were forced to turn back and return to their homes. A forced removal followed. Thanks to the 1940 census, which had been handed over to the Army and the FBI for this purpose, officials knew where nearly all Japanese residents were living. The first mass removal was from Terminal Island in the port of Los Angeles, which was owned by the military, beginning on February 25th. The first mass removal from a civilian location was from Bainbridge Island, Washington, in March. Throughout the duration of the removal, which would span about six months from when it started until everyone being out of the Pacific coast, Japanese Americans on the West Coast were placed under a curfew as well as movement restrictions. Eventually, there would be 108 individual exclusion orders, each of them targeting about a 1,000 people. For the most part, both first and second generation Japanese Americans cooperated with the removal. Some of this was an attempt to demonstrate their loyalty to the United States. Many in the Japanese community had vocally denounced the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor and invasions of other nations in Asia and the Pacific, and they had expressed their support to the United States. To many, doing as the government asked in this removal would be another way to show that they were true Americans, regardless of whether they were citizens and regardless of their Japanese ancestry. Some of this was also cultural. Japanese concepts of bearing difficult circumstances with dignity uh, and a concept uh, known as shikita ganai, or it can't be helped, come up repeatedly in accounts of how people on an individual basis and within their communities dealt with this removal. Once the removal order came, people had an average of six days to prepare, although sometimes it was as little as one. They were told to bring only what they could carry, but they were also required to bring their own linens, clothing, toiletries, and the like. Before leaving, many Japanese Americans tried to liquidate their property. Some were able to sell their homes and their property if they had stores, they had closeout sales for their stock. But because they had so little time, many had to sell their property for much, much less than it was worth. Those who owned farms often tried to negotiate with their neighbors to see to their crops while they were gone, which in some cases this worked out, and in others it did not. The only actual sabotage conviction of a Japanese-American stemming from all of this time was a farmer who plowed under his strawberry crop because he had not been allowed to harvest it before being sent to a camp. As people were leaving, salvage companies, used furniture salesmen, and others made the rounds, offering to buy people's possessions and generally offering just pitifully small amounts of money for them. Some who didn't sell, hoping to return home eventually, had their homes looted after they were gone. Others destroyed their possessions, sometimes in front of the people offering them insultingly small amounts of money rather than sell them. The Coast Guard also requisitioned boats left in the docks after their owners were removed so that they could use them in the war effort. As people were removed, they were first sent to temporary assembly points that served as basically a place to gather large numbers of people from different places before then moving them on to a more permanent camp. A lot of these were places like racetracks and horse stables and other facilities that were not really meant for housing people 
For example, over the course of the removal, 18,500 people were housed at the Santa Anita racetrack, including in the horse stalls. This is actually where George Takei and his family uh, were housed immediately after their removal. From the assembly point, people were transported by train, with the curtains closed so they could not see where they were going, to one of ten relocation centers, better known as internment camps, and more accurately known as concentration camps. These were scattered in remote areas in Wyoming, California, Utah, Arizona, Colorado, Idaho, and Arkansas. For the most part, these camps themselves were built on land that the government already owned, which was often less than ideal for human habitation. It included things like dry lake beds, lava fields, deserts, and swamps. Native American reservation land was also used. The camps were hastily built military-style housing with communal mess halls and blocks of tar paper barracks. They were surrounded by barbed wire with armed guards and searchlights. Even though the plan was to put people in these camps for a long-term stay, there had not really been a lot of thought put into maintaining the needs of communities with things like schools or houses of worship. People who were incarcerated there basically had to take care of those things themselves. No one of Japanese ancestry was exempt from the removal. Included in the order, sick people in hospitals who were kept under guard until they were either well enough to be removed or until they died. Children, including children living in orphanages who, quote, looked Japanese. Japanese children that had been adopted by white parents. Persons with severe disabilities. 17,000 of those removed were children under 10 years old. 2,000 were over 65 years old, and 1,000 were disabled or very ill. One exception to the removal order was Hawaii. It was not yet a state. At about 175,000 people, Hawaii's Japanese population was too large to just incarcerate. And many were working in industries that were critical to the war effort, including carpenters who were needed to help rebuild the base at Pearl Harbor. While some Japanese Americans in Hawaii were deemed high risk and incarcerated, most were instead subject to curfews and movement restrictions and were banned from deep sea fishing. And all of this was done without due process and with no opportunity for appeal. The camps were fenced and guarded, and the people incarcerated there could not leave. Unable to work or pay their bills, many of those incarcerated lost their jobs, homes, and possessions. Additionally, many of the states that were home to these camps were fiercely opposed to Japanese prisoners being sent there. Wyoming Senator Nell Smith insisted that the state would not be California's, quote, dumping ground, and said, quote, If you bring Japanese into my state, I promise you they will be hanging from every tree. Governor Herbert Ma of Utah argued that the Constitution should be changed because, quote, if these people are dangerous on the Pacific coast, they will be dangerous here. Even in the face of not-in-my-backyard style opposition to the camps themselves, the general public was overwhelmingly in favor of the removal and continued to see the Japanese community as a real threat, even after they had been removed. In December of 1942, a year after the bombing of Pearl Harbor and about 10 months after the signing of Executive Order 9066, a Gallup poll found that 48% of Americans believed the Japanese detainees should not be allowed to return home after the war. 
half believed they should be sent back to Japan, while 13% responded, put them out of this country. 10% said, leave them where they are, under control, presumably advocating a permanent imprisonment of citizens who had done absolutely nothing wrong. At about the same time, in a Los Angeles Times poll, a number of questions were asked about people's support of uh, the the incarcerations and and what was going on in the war. 10,598 people answered yes to, quote, do you favor a constitutional amendment after the war for the deportation of all Japanese from this country and forbidding further immigration? With an overwhelming no vote for allowing an exception for American-born Japanese people who, to be clear, again, were already citizens. And coming up, we're going to talk about the resistance to the removal and how it all came to an end. But first, we will once again take a quick break and have a word from one of our sponsors. While, on the whole, Japanese Americans had cooperated with the initial removal out of the Pacific coast, over time, divisions started to develop within the camps. Some of this was generational, with younger Nisei, who were citizens of the United States, increasingly rebelling against being denied the rights of citizenship. Nisei began pushing back against people who had uh, been in the Japanese American Citizens League insisting that this organization should have been pushing for a guarantee of their constitutional rights rather than working to appease the American government. And these divisions between the first-generation immigrants from Japan and their second-generation citizen children were exacerbated by overcrowding, poor living conditions, insufficient resources, and a generally degrading, dehumanizing experience. And there certainly were people incarcerated who really were loyal to Japan, many of them the ones who had been educated there. And over time, these groups banded together and in some cases turned on the rest of the camp, bullying and harassing those who remained loyal to the United States. As time went on, this was particularly true at Tool Lake, where people deemed disloyal or otherwise problematic were transferred. The conditions in these camps were in general poor, and they were often insufficient to withstand the climates where they were located. As an example, desert camps were often just sweltering in the summer and filled with dust from dust storms. And there were also real incidents of violence, including at the hands of guards. For example, two men were shot to death in Lordsburg, New Mexico, at the camp there on July 27, 1942, purportedly while they were trying to escape although both men were described as too ill to walk at the time. 1943 saw a number of huge changes in the war and in the camps. On January 29, 1943, a little less than a year after the Executive Order 9066 was signed, the Secretary of War issued a press release describing the right to bear arms in the nation's military as the right of every citizen, no matter their national origin. After swearing their unqualified allegiance and forswearing any form of allegiance to Japan, Nisei would be allowed to voluntarily enlist in the army. The response to this from within the camps was mixed. There were people who were eligible to serve and were elated at the chance to be released from the camp, and many also had genuinely patriotic motives for wanting to join the service. 
But others saw this as deeply hypocritical, since it made no sense for a population deemed so dangerous that they had to be incarcerated en masse to be invited to join the war effort. There was also the hypocrisy of the war in Europe, especially being like against a nation that was putting people in concentration camps. Yeah. And the invitation was for people being held in concentration camps in the United States to join the effort to fight that force. It's a lot to wrap your head around. It, well, it's one of those things where when you, when you really consider that, uh, I don't know if it's so much a lot to wrap your head around in terms of like the details, but it's like a head scratcher of like who, could look at all of this and be like, yeah, that, that makes sense. That seems yeah, correct. There's some, some mental gymnastics involved. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of times when we have talked about wartime service and now it has related to civil rights, it has been involving black soldiers who joined the service to fight for freedom and then returned home to find that they were still subject to the same discrimination and prejudice that had been true before the war. And this is a little bit different because it was literally like, please leave this concentration camp where we have been keeping you to join the service and fight Hitler. <laughs> yeah. It is a stretch. It, it's very weird. I, I'm sure people reconciled it in their heads, but I cannot understand the math involved. I'm sure we will get emails from people who insist that it was the right thing to do. Uh, and there had already been Japanese Americans in the armed forces before Pearl Harbor, and along with new recruits, most wound up in segregated units. These included the 100th Infantry Battalion and the 422nd Regimental Combat Team, which were eventually combined. These could definitely be an episode on their own. People have certainly asked for us to do that. But overall, uh, the short version is that they served with extreme valor. My original plan... Was actually to include a lot more on them in this episode, but the, uh, the whole rest of this episode, there was too much of it. Uh, so uh, maybe someday in the future, we will have a show on them. In 1943, a number of policies also allowed some people to be released from the camps. One was a, quote, mixed marriage, non-exclusive policy, which allowed young people who were part Japanese to be released under the argument that being kept in a Japanese-only camp might turn them against the United States. However, many of those who were released had nowhere to go. They had no funds because their assets had been frozen and their families had lost everything, and they faced huge hostility out in the rest of the world. That same year, the War Department and the War Relocation Authority also tried to put together a way to figure out if the people being held in the camps were loyal. Those who were not could not be released under the newly announced policies. They did this through a questionnaire that became known as the Loyalty Questionnaire. And two of its questions in particular, numbers 27 and 28, were problematic. Question 27 asked eligible men if they were willing to serve in combat duty and asked everyone else if they were willing to serve in some non-combat way. And people were afraid that answering yes to question 27 would basically volunteer them for active duty in the military. Question 28 asked whether they would swear loyalty to the United States and forswear loyalty to the Emperor of Japan. 
Being American citizens born in the U.S., most of whom had never even been to Japan, many had no loyalty to forswear, and people were reluctant to swear loyalty to a government that had been imprisoning them without due process, in defiance of numerous aspects of the Constitution because of their national origin. People who answered no to both questions were branded as the no-no boys, branded as disloyal, and in many cases transferred to Tool Lake. Those who were released from the camps in 1943 and beyond continued to face prejudice, discrimination, hostility, and even violence. And this became more of an issue as incidents that had actually happened earlier in the war involving the nation of Japan became more public knowledge. These included the Bataan Death March and the deaths of the participants in the Doolittle Raid who were captured by the Japanese. We have podcasts on the Doolittle Raid if you would like to learn more about that story. Uh, learning about these events caused an even greater increase in anti-Japanese sentiment. People became increasingly angry that the camps were too soft on the people who were incarcerated there, uh, especially in, in cases when the camps had facilities like hospitals that the nearby non-incarcerated community did not have easy access to. Through these policies in 1943, overall camp population dropped from about 107,000 to 93,000. But many who were able to leave were among the best educated, meaning that many camps lost an important source of internal leadership. Unrest and violent incidents within the camps increased, including more transfers to Tool Lake, whose non-disloyal population had to be transferred elsewhere to make room. In the spring of 1944, Nisei, once again, that is the uh, citizen children of Japanese immigrants, were made eligible for the draft. This led to the Fair Play Committee at the Heart Mountain Camp being organized and forming a draft resistance, with many of them pointing out that they were being imprisoned by a government that was now expecting them to serve in the military involuntarily. Uh, The draft resistance at Heart Mountain led to indictments and convictions for violating the Selective Service Act. Resistance to both the loyalty questionnaire and the draft of Japanese-American citizens eventually led to Public Law 78-405, Denaturalization Act of 1944, allowing citizens to voluntarily renounce citizenship during wartime. The 117 who first signed up had all been educated in Japan and were all incarcerated at Tool Lake and may have genuinely wanted to renounce American citizenship and return to Japan. But then the administration at Tool Lake started willfully ignoring problems there, including bullying and coercion at the hands of the people who really were loyal to Japan. Eventually, 5,589 people at the camp renounced their citizenship, many under duress. Most of these had their citizenship restored thanks to the work of Wayne Collins from the ACLU. Yeah, this basically became an attempt to, like, let's see how miserable we can make this situation to force people to renounce their citizenship so that we can deport them to Japan. Like, that, it, they were not very... Uh, covert, (laughs) that that was the underlying purpose. Aside from the increasing unrest and, in some cases, violence at the camps, especially as the war dragged on, 
There were also legal challenges to the internment that played out over the course of several years. Four different cases went all the way to the Supreme Court. Minoru Yusui was in the reserves, and after being turned away from enlisting in the regular army nine times after Pearl Harbor, he broke curfew on purpose and was arrested. Newspapers then described him as a spy because his children had drawn pictures of the Panama Canal. Gordon Hirabayashi, who was a Quaker, also broke curfew and got arrested on purpose. Fred Korematsu had plastic surgery on his eyes and tried to go into hiding before being convicted of violating the executive order. And Mitsuyi Endo was chosen by the ACLU as a test case to try to have the removal and incarceration ruled unconstitutional. The Supreme Court unanimously agreed in 1943 that Hirabayashi and Yasui's convictions were constitutional, and it held off on hearing the other cases until after the 1944 presidential election. On December 18th, 1944, it was unanimously ruled that the United States could not continue to detain loyal citizens of the United States. Following this decision, more and more people were allowed to leave the camps if they were able to demonstrate that they were loyal. And after the end of the war, they were gradually shut down. Tool Lake was the last to close on March 20th, 1946. However, many of the cities and towns that had been home to Japanese communities before the war no longer welcomed them, including some going so far as basically posting signs saying, don't come back here. In the end, 54,000 Japanese people uh, and citizens of Japanese ancestry returned to the Pacific Coast. 52,000 went to other parts of the United States and Hawaii. Nearly 5,000 went back to Japan, although many were allowed to return to the United States following Wayne Collins' legal advocacy on their behalf, basically having the citizenship that they had relinquished under duress restored to them. Many of these people were trying to start over with virtually nothing. The total property loss uh, from the people who either had to sell or lost their homes and businesses is estimated at $1.3 billion and the net income loss of $2.7 billion, although that is a 1983 estimate, would be more dollars than that now. 1,862 people died in the camps including an incidents of violence, including at the hands of guards. There were no serious convictions of any Japanese-American during the war for espionage, sabotage, or any of the other activities that had led to the incarceration in the first place. However, there were at least 10 convictions of white Americans for spying for the Japanese. In 1948, President Harry S. Truman signed the Japanese-American Evacuation Claims Act, which granted a total of $38 million in restitution to people who had been incarcerated. However, this amounted to a fraction of just the lost income from people's time in the camps. The Commission on Wartime Relocation and Internment of Civilians was established in 1980 after a lengthy campaign for an investigation and justice. After holding extensive hearings, it recommended an apology and a $20,000 payment to each person who had survived the internment and was then still living. President Ronald Reagan signed H.R. 442, also known as the Civil Liberties Act of 1987, into law on August 10th, 1988, which offered the recommended apology and reparation. It, quote, 
declares that one, a grave injustice was done to citizens and permanent resident aliens of Japanese ancestry by the evacuation, relocation, and internment of civilians during World War II. Two, these actions were without security reasons and without any acts of espionage or sabotage documented by the Commission on Wartime Relocation and Internment of Civilians and were motivated by racial prejudice, wartime hysteria, and a failure of political leadership. Three, that the excluded individuals suffered enormous damages for which appropriate compensation has not been made. And four, the Congress apologizes on behalf of the nation. The same act also establishes a fund for the Aleuts, who were evacuated from their home in Alaska, which was in a war zone, and interned for far longer than was needed, mainly in old fish canneries without sufficient care. Yeah, that, unlike uh, the incarceration of Japanese and Italian and German nationals and citizens, which were like for reasons of suspicion and their the idea that they were enemy aliens and all of that kind of stuff. This evacuation was because um the islands and peninsula peninsula that they were living on was in a war zone. And that that could be a whole subject of its own, I think. I don't think there's a thing on it in the archive. Um but that boiled down to basically being moved for Probably the right reasons, but in appalling conditions for uh, just way longer than was actually necessary for anybody's safety or national security. As a last note, Japanese immigrants became eligible to become United States citizens in 1952. Uh, I feel like we should also point out, in case any of our listeners had wanted to go see Allegiance when it was in movie theaters and missed the first round, hmm. it will be back in theaters this weekend, if you're listening to this, the week that it publishes on February on the 19th. 19th, correct? Yes. Uh, tickets are sold out where I live. I <laughs> have my tickets. So since I missed it the first time because I was on a plane, this time I'll get to yeah. see it. Uh, how about listener mail on this one? I do have listener mail and it is from Sandy. And Sandy says, hi, ladies. Just want to say I'm a longtime listener and enjoy your informative broadcasts. I have been a pediatric intensive care nurse for many years. When I was a young nurse in the 80s, we used iron lungs. They were good for the patient who needed respiratory support due to muscle weakness like polio, infant paralysis, and Guillain-Barre syndrome. As you said in your podcast, there are very few left. I think not so much it was because it was not good technology, but more the fact that they were expensive to maintain. They were very big and heavy. They became harder and harder to find as suppliers stopped making them, and existing tank respirators eventually wear out, and better positive pressure ventilators were developed. I actually liked them, as a child could talk while in it, while a conventional ventilator and a breathing tube is down their throat and into their lungs. It is uncomfortable, requires sedation, and is always at risk for being dislodged. There are less invasive ventilator machines, but they require strapping a mask to the face, also not comfortable, and they have their own pros and cons. Anyway, I was recently home visiting my mom, 93 years old, also a nurse, uh, and we stopped. I'm going to leave out the place where they stopped because privacy. They have the most fascinating warehouse, and right in the front door was an old iron lung. It had a sold sign on it. Not sure what the buyer was going to do with it, but uh, it was interesting to see. 
I'm attaching a photo. My mom said that when she was a young nurse, they had polio wards with these iron lungs. Hospitals now have backup generators for when there's a power outage. As you can imagine, almost everything at a bedside now has an electrical component. Not so much when my mom was a young nurse. All IVs were regulated by hand, no bedside monitors, etc. She did say that they would, if they would lose electricity with storms and such, uh, they had to pump the iron lungs with a foot pedal to keep the bellows pumping. I did a search on photos and came across a bunch. These were older than the kind I worked with, but maybe not my mom. There's a picture of a nurse holding a cigarette for a patient in the iron lung sigh. And then she gives a link to the photos. I'm always amazed to see how far medicine has come in a relatively short time. Early ventilators had very little that could be adjusted compared to the ones we have now. Sort of like two tin cans and a string compared to an iPhone 7. All I can think is that in another 50 years, we will look back on our state-of-the-art technology and think, how barbaric. Sorry if this is a bit wordy. Don't apologize. It's great. I love the wide variety of interesting topics. Your thoroughness... uh, Without overwhelming your listeners, yours, Sandy. Thank you so much, Sandy. Uh, I'm going to be honest. I had not thought about the fact that uh, a pro of the iron lung would be that it allowed patients to speak and not have a tube down their throat. Yeah, me um, either. But then when I first read that email, my thought was like, if I were in a position to need such a thing and have any level of say in the matter, I would be like, iron lung, please. <laughs> I like to talk more. Uh, yeah, I had not thought about that at all. Um, and I can completely see how that would be, especially with children who don't necessarily have other means of communicating, uh, their own needs that being able to speak well in an iron lung could be really, really beneficial. Um, and yeah, there are lots of pictures of polio wards that were basically rows and rows of iron lungs with patients in them during the height uh, of polio. So thank you so much for writing to us. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissInHistory.tumblr.com. We're on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History, And that's also where our Instagram is at History. You can come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com, to find uh all kinds of information about just about anything your heart desires. And you can come to our website, which is missinhistory.com to find show notes on all the episodes Holly and I have ever worked on, an archive of every episode ever, lots of other cool stuff. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at howstuffworks.com or missinhistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 